Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Although the last week has been icy cold and some late flakes of snow have even found their way to our Sussex garden, annoying the magpies and giving our rosemary frost-bitten fingers, today is actually the vernal equinox, the very first day of spring, at least in the northern hemisphere. If you're listening from the southern hemisphere, happy autumn. Wherever in the wide world you are, the same sun is shining on us all, and today we'll receive equal amounts of sunlight. The word equinox comes from the Latin words for equal and night, equus and nox. That wobbling sound you can hear in the background is me attempting to balance an egg in an upright position. It's a folk tradition that eggs can only be balanced in this way at the equinoxes when the earth is in perfect balance. Some scientists have suggested that it's actually quite easy to balance an egg at any time of the year and that people might subconsciously sabotage their own attempts at egg balancing on other days. I don't know about that because so far I have failed to balance an egg successfully at all. So um, any tips for egg balancing would be gratefully received. The spring equinox is also called Ostara, which probably comes from Aosta, a Germanic goddess of spring, whose name has associations with the rising dawn and the returning of light. Ostara is celebrated by pagans today as a welcoming of spring's energies of renewal and rebirth, a meeting of the sacred masculine and feminine, and a balance between dark and light. The ancient Celts commemorated the day as the sun god's triumph over the forces of darkness. Whether you manage to make it balance or not, the egg is the perfect symbol for Ostara, full of new life, potential and the fertility of the earth. 
Our tale today is from the mysterious and magical shores of Cornwall. So steady your hands and place your eggs and gather round the fire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Three Ravens podcast. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm gazing into a mermaid's mirror in search of a story and I'm summoning my co-host Martin Vaux from the depths of the sea with a siren song to join me. Blub, 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 splatoosh. Hello, Eleanor. Hello. I'd like to start by saying a huge thank you to everyone who's entered our Three Ravens card design contest so far. Yes, thank you. They are very, very pretty. We are very lucky. For artists of any skill level, please do send us your designs for a greetings card, especially those inspired by nature and folk traditions. At the end of the series, we'll pick our favourite three designs to turn into cards, which we'll sell through our Three Ravens shop for a 50-50 profit share with the winners. We've had some really stunning entries so far. To enter, just send your design through to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com. And thank you to all the people who've been liking, commenting and sharing through Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, especially Craig, Sarah, Aurea, David, Fairytale Tuesday, Sussex Life, Somerset Life and Laura, who sent us a gorgeous entry to our Three Ravens card design contest. If you have five minutes, do please hop onto iTunes and leave us a review. We're currently unreviewed on iTunes. Mm -hmm. And the more people who add reviews and ratings, the easier it is for others to find us and the higher iTunes moves us up its rankings. Yes. In particular, if we can get 2,000 downloads in our first eight weeks, which is quite a mountain to climb, we could be added to the iTunes new and noteworthy list and that would be a real game changer for us. So please, please share us with friends, neighbours, strangers in the streets. Mysterious people you meet in the woods, (laughs) the troll under your local bridge. Uh, The fairies at the bottom of your garden. They love podcasts. (laughs) You know, anyone, everyone, anything. Cool, God. (laughs) So, Ostara is obviously a very special day in the pagan year. Sure is. But we are also celebrating St Cuthbert's Day today. Okay. Our copy of A Chronicle of English Folk Customs calls Cuthbert a misogynist hermit. (laughs) Is that a direct quote? Yes, and it doesn't elaborate any further. (laughs) So, I, of course, had to look him up. Right. So, St Cuthbert of Lindisfarne was a monk, bishop and hermit who had a very busy career of visions and village conversion before eventually retiring to a life of contemplation. Okay, so I'm more familiar with the latter part of the St Cuthbert story because I have been researching County Durham where St Cuthbert's body eventually ended up. And so he's really important to the history of County Durham. But I didn't know anything about his life story Where does this misogyny come in? Well, it comes from a legend that Cuthbert excluded women from a defined area surrounding his shrine at Durham Cathedral. Okay, so like a a, a male-only safe space. 
Yes, a bit. <laughs> so apparently Countess Judith of Northumbria was rather curious about the limitations of this male only well, safe space. Be. As you would be, yeah. So she sent one of her servants to essentially play chicken with Cuthbert's edict. Okay, I love the way that Julia of or Julia? Judith. Judith of Northumbria was um kind of not inclined to go herself. Instead she was like, uh, ladies in waiting, who's here? Ah, yes, uh, Brenda. Brenda, you know how fond I am of you, Brenda. I, I'm hatching a plan. <laughs> That's what you do in the 12th century. Okay. Yeah, you never go yourself. You always send a servant first. Oh, of course, of course. So I'm thinking false moustaches, that she dressed her up like a man and tried to smuggle her in. I wish the story was that involved, but actually it's it's um, quite short and sharp. Right. So just as this uh, this young woman, Brenda, set foot inside the precincts of the cathedral, she was struck by a violent gust of wind and then died in terrible pain. So, um, she died from the pain of wind. I could have phrased that better. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, she was struck by a breeze. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear, St Cuthbert's breeze killed this woman we've just invented, Brenda. Yes, and um, needless to say, <laughs> Countess Judith decided not to go herself after that, and she sent Cuthbert some presents of silver and gold to apologise. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a little business plan coming here. Because, a side hustle. Yeah, the people of our East Sussex village may appreciate my own emissions. Mm. So if we just get our hands on the right pulses, let's say then uh, potentially we could have uh, riches coming our way. Interesting. <laughs> I'm seeing a sponsorship by Heinz Baked Beans, <laughs> gold and silver to persuade you to stop. Yeah, exactly, yes, right? I, think, I think it's worth looking into that uh -huh. a bit further, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, as for poor St Cuthbert, uh, <laughs> he doesn't appear to be the patron saint of anything in particular, not right. like St Tibber with her falconers, but I did find out that there's a breed of eider duck called St Cuthbert's Duck. Is this just a singular St Cuthbert's Duck that's lived for centuries? No, it's a whole breed. There's oh, loads okay. of them. Right. And so perhaps he's got some importance to waterfowl, which we can't begin to understand. So St Cuthbert, I think we should reframe as the saint of quacks, of flatulence, and also obviously Durham. Yes. <laughs> Today is also the last day. It's traditionally safe to sow peas. Safe to sow peas. Yes. Let us know what happens if you sow your peas tomorrow I or, God forbid, yeah. next week. I don't think we should be encouraging people to sow peas after today. No, if that's it's, true. If it's At your own risk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't say we didn't warn you. <laughs> Oof. With that, I think it's time to unleash the county crier and clang our way into Cornwall. Release the county crier! is at the southwest tip of England and it's bordered to the east by Devon, to the south by the English Channel and to the north and west by the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. Martin, have you visited Cornwall? I have been a few times to Cornwall. Um, been to Torquay a couple of times, like Torquay, and I've had a couple of holidays to Mevergissey, which is a very pretty little uh, fishing village. I can't say I know Cornwall terribly well, though. Unlike you, you spent a lot of your time as a uh, young Eleanor 
scampering around Cornwall making trouble. Yes, I feel quite a personal connection to Cornwall and to the Lizard Peninsula in particular. That's the very southernmost tip, as it's where I went for many family trips when I was a younger child. I'm presuming it's also filled with lizards? I don't think it's filled with lizards. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Why is it called the Lizard Peninsula? I don't know. We'll have to look that one up or perhaps somebody can write in and tell us. <laughs> Maybe it's a way of trying to deter people from buying second homes down there. Possibly. <laughs> the, the threat of huge Godzilla-like lizards yeah, exactly. rampaging across the land. Come and holiday at Komodo Island. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember feeling inspired by Cornwall at a very early age by the ancient coast and its wealth of stories some very beautiful and some absolutely terrifying. Yay. <laughs> but I couldn't get enough of the gift shops full of mermaids' eggs, fairy statues and baskets of shells and crystals. And back at home, I was pretty obsessed with the old series of Poldark and the book The Mousel Cat. Mm -hmm. Though I haven't ever tried the famous stargazy pie. We keep threatening to cook a stargazy pie, but we always cowered out of it in the end. Something just puts me off. <laughs> Not sure what it is. <laughs> Aside from the magic of my childhood memories, Cornwall is an incredibly enchanting place. It was once its own kingdom, the Brythonic Kingdom of Dumnonia. Oh, good name. It even has its own language. Yes. Which did become extinct, but has had a revival now. Well, it became extinct. I didn't know that. Yes, it died out, I think, and then was brought back in the 18th century. Right. Um... Now, we won't attempt to correctly pronounce it on the podcast, um, <laughs> but if you would like a flavour, Kelly's Cornish Ice Cream actually shot a Cornish language trailer. Oh, really? Which you can find on YouTube. Oh, well, I'll which add that gives to you a little blog. taste of the, the language as yeah. well as the delicious ice cream. Nice. I'll, I'll put it on the uh, three ravenspodcast.com blog where uh, we keep all the videos and pictures associated with the things we talk about during the episodes. Great. So there's a big crossover between history and legend in Cornwall. Yeah. The King Arthur, who we spoke about in the last episode, was supposedly conceived and born at Tintagel in North Cornwall. I have always wanted to go to Tintagel, and they fairly recently um, created a new bridge across so you can get to the island more easily. So can we go? Can we go? Can we go? Oh, I would love to go. <laughs> <laughs> there's also King Mark of Cornwall, who was a real 6th century king, but who also features prominently in Arthurian legend legend, most famously in the story of Tristan and Isolde. Now, I can't say that I know anything about King Mark. Uh, what's the deal with him? Oh, he pops up in a, loads of medieval works and he's often quite a dark and conflicted figure. Oh, dark King Mark. Dark King Mark, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, he's, uh, he's generally not uh, a thoroughly good geezer, especially in the story of Tristan and Isolde. Okay, so, all right definitely worth looking into mm. actually if you're a fan of king arthur and all things arthurian you can actually go on an arthurian trail around cornwall mm. as there's loads of sites that are linked with him there's tintagel of course and there's also bossini mound right. where the story is that the round table which is buried beneath the mound will rise up one midsummer's night when arthur and his knights are due to return which midsummer night 
Well, I don't know. I, I think we'll have to go every midsummer night until the round table emerges. Well, that sounds like a good idea to me. I don't have plans, so... Uh... Great. Pop <laughs> it in the diary. <laughs> this Slaughter Bridge is the site of the Battle of Camelan, which... Sorry, what? Slaughter Bridge? Yes, Slaughter Bridge. It's <laughs> a place, uh, site of a battle, where Arthur fought against Mordred, and also site of the Ogham Stone, which is a... I was about to say it's a standing stone, but it's actually lying down. The a, Ogham, a reclining the stone. stone. Yes, a reclining stone. <laughs> uh, Tennyson was inspired by that spot for his cycle of poems, Idols of the King, which I'm guessing you will be much more familiar with than I am. Yeah, I mean, I'm not like the biggest Tennyson guy in the whole wide world. Love the Kraken. I've got time for In Memoriam. Some of Idols of the King, though, they do go on a little bit. Yes, you can definitely say that for Tennyson. He knew how to write a very long poem. I think Idols of the Kings in 12 books, isn't it? it, it yes, like yeah, it ain't brief. <laughs> but there is an Arthurian centre there today at Slaughter Bridge, which is an amazing resource for scholars. I mean, that's got to be one of the ultimate flex jobs. Um, yeah, I'm uh, head of the Arthurian centre at Slaughter Bridge. I mean, I imagine that's on your business card. Ooh. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Does Mary Paul on Bodmin Moor has even been floated... Oh, apologies for that. <laughs> ...as the original location of the mysterious Lady of the Lake. Oh, okay. So yeah. the sword Excalibur is possibly even now still in Dosmary Pool. But when I think about Bodmin Moor, I don't think about Lady of the Lake. I think about being terrified. Yes, it is an interesting one. It is a very dramatic landscape. Mm -hmm. Picture granite tours, mm -hmm. treeless heath, mm -hmm. treacherous peach bogs, mm -hmm. and countless ancient monuments, standing stones, barrows, cairns, and Neolithic circles. Yes, but all of it being roamed over by the Beast of Bodmin Moor. Oh, yes, the Beast of Bodmin Moor. So <laughs> the fearsome Beast of Bodmin is a legendary giant phantom cat, mm -hmm. which is said to stalk the moors, helping itself to livestock and presumably to people too. Yeah. Well, in quite. That's why they put a prison there, I think, is because all the prisoners just say to themselves, well, we could escape from this place. And then, you know, someone looks across and goes, aye, but the beast, you know, <laughs> deterrent, ultimate deterrent. I mean, people have suggested that the beast of Bodmin was just an escaped wildcat Nonsense. from uh, a zoo or a, a nobleman's collection. But most people attribute the reports of its glowing yellow eyes and horrifying growls to the paranormal. Yeah, quite rightly so. It's a terrifying monster. That's, that's my explanation. I, I need to go no further. <laughs> well, Bodmin Moor is also the location of Jamaica Inn, oh, yeah. which is a real coaching inn, but it features in Daphne du Maurier's novel of the same name yes, yes. as this centre for smuggling. Smuggling was rife in Cornwall, especially in the 18th century. And you can still you can visit Jamaica Inn today. It's a working pub, um, but it's also a museum. Have you been and there? I've never been there. It has. I have been there. Yes. Oh yeah. I have been How there. How was it like? Um, very interesting. While I was visiting, they actually had on show the collection of taxidermy by a Victorian man called Walter Potter. Ah, the guy who, from Stenning. Yes, we passed his house in Stenning, didn't yes. we? Yes. Um, he, so he was a taxidermist who was quite famous for his very detailed 
taxidermy tableau. Creepy, really, really creepy. Including things like kittens dressed as school children mm-hmm. in a schoolroom, uh, a funeral of Cock Robin featuring all the different woodland birds, yep. and there's a two-headed lamb, there's all kinds of things. So hold it's, on, is that permanently at Jamaica Inn? No, it's now been bought, it's in a private collection, so someone's got that at home. Phew, so we can go back to Jamaica Inn without fears of seeing scary taxidermy. Extremely old taxidermy, no. <laughs> It's safe, apart from the ghost of the murdered sailor who is... What? (laughs) Well, Jamaica Inn is haunted. And uh, one of the ghosts that's said to walk there is the ghost of a murdered sailor who always returns for one last drink. Ooh, that sounds great. Okay, I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm feeling spooked, but I also want to go. So, yeah, we'll have to add that to the list, won't we? (laughs) Lots of writers are actually very inspired by Cornwall. So I've talked about Daphne du Maurier. She lived in Cornwall at Foy, and a lot of her novels are set there. Yeah. There's also Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes tale, The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. Oh, that's a great story. Absolutely terrified me as a child. We had an audio cassette and... What can I say? The acting was extremely good and it, it still frightens me now. I've never listened to it again. <laughs> and uh, Winston Graham's pulled out novels and some of Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising sequence. Nice. See, now we were talking the other day about The Dark is Rising. I've never read them. I, I was put off the books by the film, which was not a good film for those of you who've not watched it. Don't go near. Um why is uh, it interesting in relation to Cornwall? Well, the second book in the cycle, Greenwich, is set in a Cornish village. And uh, at the centre of the plot is this folk festival around the Green Witch, which is a huge woven wicker man-like figure yeah. um, of a green woman, which is thrown into the sea. And it's a, it's a female-only festival and it's very mysterious. Oh, OK, um, sounds amazing. So now I'm going to have to read these books, Susan Cooper. Oh, he absolutely should. They are a joy. OK. And Cornish folklore in general is an absolute gift to enthusiasts like ourselves. There are ghosts, there are smugglers, Unlike there are Sussex, wreckers. Right? There, there are no smugglers or wreckers in Sussex, right? Oh, no. <laughs> Sussex folk have never smuggled anything. <laughs> <laughs> and there are fairies. There are actually five distinct types of Cornish fairy. What? Yep, five types. The Spriggans, the small people, the Piskies or Pigsies, right. the Buckers or Bockles, and the Brownies, each uh, with their own unique character. Uh, I had some run-ins with Brownies when I was in the Cub Scouts. Yeah. Dangerous. Oh. Got, to, got to keep away from them. Well, the benevolence of their intentions varies widely, I believe. <laughs> yeah, Not I all brownies are friendly and helpful. <laughs> <laughs> some will say dib, 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 dub, 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 yeah. and some will steal all your milk. Yeah, like some of them carry knives. I believe it. I can't talk about Cornish folktales without mentioning Jan Tregeagle. Right, now that is a mouthful. Jan Tregeagle. Yes. Now, loads of different legends exist about him, but he is widely agreed to have been the most evil man in Cornwall. Whoa, okay. More evil than smugglers, more evil than wreckers. More evil than all of them, because Jan Tregeagle made a pact with the devil. He's a sort of Cornish Faust. Okay. And all manner of wicked deeds have been attributed to, to him. (laughs) Okay, all right. So he's a devilish Faustian figure. 
Yes. Jan Tregeagle. I've never heard of him. What well, the... it's thought there was a real man called Jan Tregeagle. He was actually a magistrate in the 17th century, but it's uh, been blown and twisted all out of proportion by I... legend. <laughs> I um... like the idea that maybe he wasn't actually that bad. He was just really annoying. And, and over time, <laughs> it snowballed. Like, he's the kind of person who, when you leave the house with, like, freshly polished shoes, he just comes up and, and steps on them and makes them dirty. And people respond, oh, Jan Tregeagle, you're not evil man in Cornwall. <laughs> well, if that was what Jan Tregeagle was up to, he's certainly been punished for it because he's now a kind of wandering Jew of Cornwall. Oh, okay. He's a restless ghost um, and his soul can never find peace for Ooh. his evil deeds in life. So he's been doomed to try and complete a series of impossible tasks. Oh, like what? Like um, what? So one of them's emptying Dosemary Pool using a limpet shell with a hole drilled into it. Oh, come on. And another one is weaving ropes using the sand of Gwenna Cove. Weaving ropes made of sand? Yes. These are impossible jobs for Jan Tregeagle. He must have been a really, really naughty fellow. <laughs> well, I think he was. <laughs> now, I would not have forgiven myself if I hadn't had a little look into Cornish superstitions and, of course, folk medicine. And I was not disappointed. Yeah, you love your folk medicine. Okay, so what have you got for me from many, many ailments? We have a great little cure for warts, okay. if you've got some warts, <laughs> which involves taking a black slug, uh -huh. slitting it open to show the white inside, Ooh. and rubbing it over the wart. Oh, no. And then you pin the still live slug to a thorn tree during the new moon. The still live slug? Yes, it, it will supposedly survive... Um, application to the wart and still be alive mm. well, so sounds... you can pin it to the thorn tree and then as the slug dries up yeah. the wart will fall off and it will be gone by the full moon oh that sounds so gross i really don't want to do that well don't get warts then okay <laughs> and don't get tuberculosis either because a traditional cure for that was to take a spoonful of earth from the grave of a newly interred virgin a what? dissolve it in water and drink it <laughs> And if you're suffering from a sty in the eye, yeah. you'll be pleased to know you can cure it by stroking the eye nine times, either with a wedding ring uh -huh. or a tomcat's tail. A tomcat's tail? Yes. I feel like putting a cat near your eyes is asking for trouble. You're going to have other problems than a sty, aren't you? Yeah, I think you might. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the nine times of the stroke, the number nine obviously figures quite heavily in the world of superstition. Yeah, yeah. But it has this lovely local touch in Cornwall. Obviously, there are loads of ancient stones. The landscape of Cornwall is rich with these, these ancient stones. Yeah. And some of the folk beliefs around curing disease are connected to these stones. So it's said that crawling on all fours nine times through the creeping stone of Madron will cure lumbago. What? I mean, it would require the person suffering from lumbago to be well enough to do that. So I don't know how effective that one's been. I think this is something that, like, a mean person thought up. They're like, uh, hey, Ken, you know how you've got lumbago? Um, so if you go on your hands and knees and, uh, and crawl nine times through that creeping stone, uh, that's going to sort be your fine. problem out. Oh, that's mean. And also, if you have a child with rickets or yeah. scrofula... Luckily, I don't. But if you did, yeah. you could pass it through the hole in the stone at Menantol to cure it. 
How big is this stone? Oh, it's pretty big. Oh, okay. I'll yeah, yeah, that then. it's pretty big. Uh, hold stones are, are great, actually, because they're supposed to confuse evil spirits. Right. So if you're being pestered by evil spirits, you can pass through the stone safely and the spirit will be left behind. Well, I don't know if people are familiar with the size of me or my mighty girth, but trying to fit me through the average stone is just not going to work out. You, you need an enormous stone, and we just don't have any enormous stones around here for me to pass through. I'm sorry, we'll just have to go to Cornwall. Huzzah! <laughs> so as Cornwall is mostly surrounded by sea, it stands to reason that many of its mythologies involve the sea, from Cormoran, the giant who made St Michael's Mount, another great story, to Morgor, the fearsome sea serpent. Oh, I like a sea serpent. But our tale today is about perhaps the most famous mythical sea-dwelling creature of all, the alluring but often deadly mermaid. Mm. Stories of mermaids have existed for thousands of years and span cultures all across the world. Ours is, of course, a Cornish mermaid, and I'll start weaving her story in just a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This tale was made where the sea meets the sky at the edge of the world. It's as old as a barnacled anchor, and as new as the sunrise glinting on a sinuous, scaly tail. On a green and rain-drenched isle, there lived a woman named Asinora. She was noble and fair, but she wandered on her way through life with no lover to call her own. That was because Asinora had a secret. She was a woman, but she was not only a woman. Whenever she was completely submerged in water, she underwent a change. Her long, pale legs grew close together as though they were caught in a fishing net, and a fine covering of scales, glittering like new shillings, crept over them until she had a long, flexible tail, just like a sea snake's. Asinora did not mind her tail, for it only troubled her when she bathed, but she was quick and observant enough to realise that others might mind it a great deal. In those days, folk were quick to condemn faces and limbs which didn't look like their own, and swift to kindle bonfires when confronted by the strange. It was for this reason that she kept to herself, living quietly in a secluded tower and shunning the company of men. But one day, as Asinora was walking by the banks of the river, 
and enjoying the sound of the birds in the blossom trees and the sight of the darting minnows in the shallows, everything changed. A knight came riding towards her, following the bends of the river. At first, all Asanura could see was a tiny dot on the horizon, but soon, far too soon, the dot resolved itself into a coal-black warhorse decked in white and gold, and a knight on its back likewise brilliantly apparelled. It was too late for Asanura to run back to her tower and out of his sight. The knight rode right up to her and wished her good morning. She hoped that would be the end of it, but he seemed in no hurry at all, and was soon sliding from his horse's back and giving it a drink from the river, and passing the time of day in a very gentlemanly fashion. Now this knight, whose name was Revelin, was very much struck by Asanura's charms, not least the expression of slight panic in her eyes and the way she kept glancing over her shoulder as if there was somewhere she would rather be. Ordinarily, he was the sort of knight who would waste no time in urging a pretty woman to lie down in the flower-strewn field with him, but he could see that it would be no use. She seemed so shy and so timid that he knew he would have to find another way. So Revelyn dawdled along with Asanora, telling her all manner of tales of his grand adventures and his great friendship with the young king. As she had never been anywhere or talked to anybody, the pictures he painted in her imagination were wonderful indeed. And while he talked, she stole sidelong glances at him from underneath her eyelashes, and she liked what she saw. Why prolong my story? By the end of the walk, Asanura and Revelyn were promised to each other, and by the end of the week, they were married. The marriage feast was fine, and the guests danced for days. Revelyn carried Asanura away to his castle by the sea, and showered her with rubies red as roses, pearls big as plums, and crystal caskets of glittering gold. She promised to love him truly and faithfully, as long as he promised to leave her quite alone every Saturday so she could take a bath. This seemed an easy enough thing to promise, so Revelyn happily agreed. Why is it that the one thing we know we must never do is the thing which seems the most alluring? Now, I don't mean to say that Revelyn broke his vow directly, no, far from it. They were delighted with one another and many moons had waxed and waned in their marriage before anything went wrong. But while Revelyn enjoyed Asanora's company and had no complaints about her, he became restless and irritable for thinking of the one thing he had promised not to do. Every Saturday, when his wife sent for buckets of steaming water and pounds of sweet-smelling soap and unbound her hair from its twisted crown of braids, he looked at the closed door to her chamber, and he wondered. Every Saturday, he made himself walk away and ride his warhorse in the forests or fly his hawk to the windy skies. Until one Saturday, when his own curiosity lit him up with too bright a flame to fight, and he flung back the doors to Asinora's chamber to see her in the bath. From the waist up, it was his own beloved wife, every inch known to him, with her wet hair all loose and spilling over the rim of the bath. But from the waist down, the bath was filled with a monstrous tail, big as a barrel of herring and tremendously long. 
Asinora shrieked and called out after her husband, but it was too late. Revelyn rushed from the room, and she could hear him raging through the castle, calling to his men and raising the hue and cry. Asinora was terrified. He no longer sounded like the man she loved, but had the voice of a stranger. She did not pause to think. In her fear, she slithered from the bath and straight out of the window of the castle turret and into the raging seas below. A fierce current caught her at once, and with a few thrashes of her powerful tail, she was soon borne away from the land. And she wept, because she knew that Revelyn had lost a good and faithful wife, despite the secrets she had kept from him. And she wept because she knew he would never be able to love her as she was, half woman and half fish. And she wept for the life she had known on the green and rain-drenched island, now lost to her forever, and for the love in her own heart which had been for the whole of her husband, even though his had never been for the whole of her. She swam a long while below the waves, longing for the ocean's dark and infinite embrace to soothe the pain she felt. Now a long way from those shores, across that tempest-tossed sea, was the Cornish headland, and on that headland near Porthsena Cove stood Matty Trewella, gazing out to sea. Thrift and sea campion grew in tangles round his feet, and the wind blew his hair into curly clouds. He looked out as far as his eyes would allow, but he did not see the ridged back of Morgor the serpent, and he did not hear the bells of the lost city of Leoness, drowned in a single night or so, they say. Instead, he saw the sunrise and the haze over the waves. Some days the sea shone like a mirror, but that day it was shrouded in mist. Matty was pleased because he knew the old saying, mist from the hill brings water for the mill. Mist from the sea brings fine weather for me. He would have stood watching all day, but he wanted to get to the church. It was a Saturday, not a Sunday, but Matty Truella had a fine, strong voice, and he sometimes liked to go into the church to practice his singing when nobody else was there. The church in Zena was simple and fresh and flooded with light from its high windows. Matty stood in the nave and faced towards the altar, and his voice rose up like a fluttering lark. As he sang his way through his favourite hymns, the church door slid softly open. Up the aisle came a woman, spattering droplets onto the stone floor as she went. Her hair was long and wild, every shade of gold and brown, and some of it deeper, softer, coloured like the inside of a wave. Her dress was made of plaited seaweed which had wound itself around her body as she swam. It was Asinora, the lady from the sea. Matty neither heard her nor paused in his singing, but he was moved by the music and carried somewhere far away from his own self on the wings of a song. And the bright sun which the sea mist had foretold shone through the leaded panes of glass and onto Matty's cheek, making it glow warm. The softest breath of a sound came from Asinora's lips as she looked at him. No, she did more than look. She beheld him, just exactly as he truly was. Now, Matty finished his hymn, and although he was in the church, it was not Sunday. 
though he thought nothing of striking up with another song, a merry sailor's ballad in the old language of the land. When he reached the chorus, he heard another voice joining in with him. Asanora was singing too, and her voice was high and pure at the top, and rough and velvety at the bottom. And Matty stopped singing in shock, and then he turned and he saw her, and he beheld her too. Her arms were wet, and her tangled locks of hair, and at the hem of her seaweed dress he could see a pale white foot with greenish veins and fish scales vanishing away up her long, smooth leg. But she was only a mermaid in water, but she'd been in the ocean such a long time that it took a while for all the effects to vanish. She never minded, for this was her true self, half woman and half fish, and something about this young man told her that it would be all right to show herself to him. Well, they sang together, and their voices jumped up and danced together in the space between Asanora's sea-green eyes and Matty's bright brown ones, and soon enough they were leaving the church together, arm in arm, just as though they'd been married, though no words of wedlock had ever passed their lips. But Matty Truella's old proverb was right. The sea mist had brought him fine weather, and a fine woman too. And that was the last anybody ever saw of Matty and Zena. His old mother would have gone mad with wondering about him if she hadn't had other grown-up children to care for her. She was sleeping in the graveyard before anybody brought back any news of her missing son. Now, there was a sea captain sailing his ship back from far-flung shores, his hold was full of barrels of rum and chests of tea, and he was eager to put into port and recover his land legs. But there was some trouble about getting into the harbour, so he anchored the ship a little way out to the sea to wait. All at once, he heard a woman's voice calling to him. He looked about for her, and eventually he saw her in the waves, her pale face bobbing against the dark water. The captain's first thought was that she was in danger, but then he saw the shape of her long tail beneath the surface and realised she was a mermaid. Haul up your anchor, she called to him. It's resting on my door and I can't get home to Matty and the children. Well, the captain hauled anchor fast enough for he was wary of upsetting a mermaid, having some misgivings about their powers over sea and storm. Like Quicksilver, the mermaid dived back down to the seabed and vanished from his sight. But when he was drinking in the tinner's arms that evening, having finally put into port, he told the company what he'd seen, and those of the village folk who had the longest memories all agreed that it must have been the mermaid who'd stolen away Matty Truella all those years ago. Neither Matty or the mermaid was ever seen or heard of again. Stories are as changeable as the colour of the sea, so nobody could quite agree if she was really a mermaid, or a saint, or a beautiful woman that they carved her image on a bench in the church, the very one on which she sat to sing. You can still see it today if you visit. And if you stand on the headland at Porthsena Cove, sunrise on a spring morning, you might just hear the lovers' voices on the edge of the breeze. And so my tale is told, and now it belongs to you. Martin, what are your thoughts about the Mermaid of Zena? Oh, so nice. Lovely, happy story. 
Yes, I love a mermaid story and a love story, of course. Yep, I've got to say, though, uh, Ravellin, what a jerk that night. Oh, yes. <laughs> I kind of missed out on a tremendous opportunity for a happy marriage, um, getting all judgmental about mermaid tales. Yes, I think he, he thought he wouldn't have had a happy marriage with a mermaid. Well, this is the thing. When you told me, don't come into the bathroom when I'm having a bath, yada yada, you know, when I eventually did that day and saw your mermaid tail, I was like, oh, cool, Eleanor has a mermaid tail. And that was sort of the beginning of something great. So uh, maybe they were not destined to be together. Yeah, really. I, I think he just wasn't the right man for her. Sure. And then he got matty, all wind-tousled and all kind of associated with the natural landscape. I thought that was another interesting feature of the story is you've kind of got this knight who's evidently from a kind of upper class uh, sort of gentry landed background and then Matty who's more embedded in the landscape and and not so rich and I, and I think therefore there's something quite interesting about uh, who she should be with because she's obviously of the landscape too. Yes I didn't think of that actually there is that sort of class element isn't yep. there <laughs> and of course the romantic theme of being uh, embedded in the land. Yeah definitely. <laughs> Well, one of my favourite things about this one is quite often when you have a wild feminine figure like a mermaid in, in Tales, she gets trapped into a domestic situation which she doesn't want. Just got to check. Pun intended when you say Tales? Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking of the tale of the Selkie who's trapped on land when a man steals her seal skin. But in The Mermaid of Xena, she steals the man away and brings him into her, her watery world. Yeah, it's a nice change, rather than it being a bloke up to no good, which it normally is. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, it normally is. <laughs> so there is, um, I say fact, but um, there's a basis on, of Asinora in the story, because the church at Xena is actually named after St. Sonara. Okay. So there's very little historical information about this saint, uh, but apparently she was a Breton princess whose husband accused her of adultery and threw her into the sea in a barrel. Oh, as you do. <laughs> uh, yes, seems a reasonable response. <laughs> um, but she was visited by an angel while floating in the sea and then washed up on the coast of Cornwall and founded the village and the church. Well, good work, Sonara, after having what must have been a pretty rough ride. <laughs> a traumatic experience, yeah, yes. Yeah, for sure. There are some great Cornish saints, actually, um, for our for our saint calendar, the pin-up calendar that we're yeah, putting together. Yeah. A, a great unsung heroine of the saint canon is Saint Mimver, okay. who saw the devil off by throwing her comb at him. Right. Uh, I mean, we have to add throwing the comb to uh, flatulence. It seems like we're having a flatulence every episode, this episode. But, you know, we had the gelding of the devil. Um, we need to put together, I think, a, a, a guide, like a field guide. Ways to defeat the devil. Yeah, if you encounter him. Uh, use your comb, like Minva. <laughs> well, I think that the story is she was combing her hair next, next to a pool, I believe. It's yeah. usually next to a pool. And the devil uh, rocked up and uh, thought he could... Uh, insinuate himself because she was vain she mm -hmm. liked, liked her hair to be nice um, but when he made his approaches she, she chucked her comb at him yeah good on Minva makes sense <laughs> yes so I've expanded the mermaid tale a bit to connect it to the Melusine myth which appears in a lot of medieval romances yes, yes. and native poems too uh, I just thought there was a natural link to the story of Sonara well, I mean, for me, it's evocative of Keats and, and Lamia, of course. Um, I mean, 
Also worth mentioning A.S. Byatt's Possession, if, yes, you, if you haven't read um, that. Amazing novel. seen as the, the poem in that, isn't it? Um, but Lamia, I mean, in 1819, Keats wrote this sequence of odes, La Belle d'Anson Mercy is the most famous and probably the best one. But in uh, Lamia, you've got this lady who is a half snake. She kind of seduces this um, young man and is a revealed to be this monstrous creature by a philosopher, a natural philosopher or scientist, you might call him, called Apollonius. Um, I think it's interesting that in in that myth, or that poem, should I say, but it's you know, based on a myth, um, you've got this representation of kind of wildness and, and paganism in Lamia, and then kind of modernity and science in, in Apollonius. An awesome quote from that poem, uh, do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, women um, shapeshifting to flee men is quite a common trope um, in fairy tales and myths, isn't it? Yeah, um, well, I mean... To flee cold philosophy. Indeed. We, we had... Um... Uh, last week, uh, yes, turning into a hair. Turn into a hair. Yeah, um, we we see loads of it in classical texts. I'm thinking of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Yes, if you have never encountered Ovid's Metamorphosis, I cannot more highly recommend Ted Hughes's Tales from Ovid. It's an amazing translation. Got me into poetry when I was about thirteen or so. Uh, it's really very, very, very good. <laughs> yeah, and there's some fantastic shape shifting. I think, I think women turning into bees, uh, yeah. trees. Well, it's all about <laughs> you name it's it. It's <laughs> all about metamorphosis, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the the frame plot of the story is ancient and it's appeared in countless forms. The base note being that a supernatural being marries a human on one condition yeah. and leaves when the condition is broken as it inevitably is you see it in cupid and psyche yeah. east of the sun and west of the moon and so many more of those tales as it's well. interesting though isn't it because in our modern times we are encouraged to try and think about relationships not being so conditional mm. i if somebody says to you never do x that's sort of a, a bit of a warning sign. Well, yes, and I think what never happens in these stories is that the person saying, well, why? Yeah, quite right. In this, if Ravellin had just gone, um, yeah, why? And she said, well, I've got a mermaid tail and I don't like it, then maybe he could have had a little look and maybe improved her self-esteem as well, saying, that's a lovely mermaid tail, well done. Well, I think um, the idea that she she wasn't actually fully accepting of herself yeah. as well, which is why I wanted to include the idea of the sea crossing mm. as this moment of self-discovery. Because so water, and especially the sea, is a really common symbol for the unconscious. Yes. In Jungian psychology, the sea is a metaphor for the vastness of the unconscious mind, there's a lot going on in the depths. <laughs> and I wanted Asanura to come to the realisation that in order to be truly loved, she needed to be truly seen. Yeah, well, only makes sense, of course. Although mermaids, not that easy to see or find, actually, uh, normally. No, and they don't always have a great reputation, <laughs> yeah, do yeah, they? True enough. Although they're very beautiful, they're often depicted as these seductive sirens mm. and pictured with mirrors to show their vein. Yeah, for sure. I mean, sirens and mermaids, some people say, aren't exactly the same thing, and they sort of you know draw lines and, and distinctions between the two of them. But I suppose in our cultural mindset today, we've got 
Disney's Little Mermaid, mm, inspired yes. by Hans Christian Andersen's and she's Little Mermaid. she's quite an innocent figure, isn't she? Well, she is, but I think one of the most interesting interpretations of Hans Christian Andersen's original fairy tale, which is really strange if you've never read it, I'd really recommend checking it out. It's so sad, but people say that, in a way, it's Hans Christian Andersen writing his own story, because... Hans Christian Andersen was gay at a time where you couldn't be gay and the fact that he can't cross over into this inaccessible world sees the mermaid at the end of the story you know cry herself to death she transforms into sea foam and is is swept mm. out to sea so i mean that's very very sad and obviously not what happens uh, with ariel and sebastian in oh. the Disney version. <laughs> no no there are some great songs though <laughs> yes that's true some bops yes <laughs> that's really interesting i didn't know that mm. um, and some some mermaids are very benevolent aren't they and um, yeah. mammy wata in west african mythology is a fishtail goddess but she is kind and protects her human husbands yes husbands plural emphasis on many husbands yes but she gives them wealth and prestige and generally uh, a smoother ride through life uh, so she's great yeah good on mammy water but then there's uh, this uh, also a terrifying sea ogress whose uh, whose tail is a whale's tail what i've never heard of this what's uh, this well I, th- I think she's in a tapestry actually because she attacked uh, olaf of norway who's okay. an 11th century king uh, and, uh, i wonder what he'd done I wonder what yes. he'd done. Maybe he'd thrown something in the sea and she was like, don't litter! <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's interesting, isn't it, to think of, of a mermaid the size of a whale with yeah. a whale's tail. Mm. I love that idea. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there are any other sort of interesting chimeras. Obviously, we've got centaurs and um, lamia. That's the, the snake well, woman. Well, of course, about. you know, the devil with the kind of... Um, the goat, the legs, goat legs the in, in the bottom half yeah pan mm-hmm. i think it's interesting that it's almost always the wa- the waist down <laughs> so that's the danger zone yes stuff the danger a, zone is, is this wild beastly yeah. part unless you're a minotaur in which case it's the other way around yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> yes i wonder what the the most interesting uh, sort of waist down human animal hybrid is oh, well, please send them into yeah, us <laughs> quite right email please um, yes artwork if you can <laughs> i think i'd like to see a half human half weasel oh would you i would <laughs> you love a weasel <laughs> i do <laughs> but actually i read a lovely idea for the origin of the mermaid in saint sonara's church yes so um, there's actually a carved yes it's carved on the bench it's a beautiful carving on a bench end of a mermaid right. um, which dates in 1500s Whoa. see that's interesting because very often the kind of celebrated carvings at the ends of pews bench ends or or on chairs in churches date from the Victorian era mm. when there was the folk revival rather than from mm. you know, hundreds of years A lot of the green men mm. are actually Victorian, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. No, but this this is a this is a 16th century mermaid and I, th- I think they were they were in the, the cultural consciousness at that time because there's a portrait of Elizabeth I which has a mermaid, I think also on a chair. Oh, yeah, The Armada portrait. Super cool. I mean, all yeah. of those, well, not all of those, but a lot of Elizabethan portraits are very, very interesting because they're just rammed with kind of cryptic messages if you've mm. never seen the armada portrait again i'll put it on the blog check it out 
super super interesting because there are coded messages hidden everywhere yeah symbology is very rich it's particularly on the clothes and um when you see some excellent examples of textiles from that period they yeah. literally were walking around wearing their world oh. you know, there are dresses with snails and leaves and things that they would have seen around them that's very, very on their clothing which is cool. very interesting <laughs> and you can see them mermaids on maps from that period as well can't yeah, you for sure. just a, a map and then in the sea you've got sea monsters and mermaids and little ships sailing yep. around yeah. <laughs> but the uh, the mermaid in the context of the church apparently so the dual nature of the mermaid yeah. fish and woman represents the two aspects of christ so human and divine oh that's very very interesting it's really nice isn't because, it well particularly if we switch that around and go should we consider christ to be a monster oh that feels like a that feels like a different topic. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so where are we going to be wandering to next week? Well, as previously mentioned, we are heading up north to County Durham. Ooh, lovely! I look forward to that. Mm. Very exciting. Yeah, I've got a dragon for you. Oh, excellent! <laughs> <laughs> Do like a dragon. Thank you so much again to those who've shared and liked us on social media. Yes, thank you. Sent us stories and pictures, and generally shown us some love. Please join in via facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast, or at Three Ravens Pod on Twitter. If you like bonus content, including exclusive stories, or are interested in our monthly Three Ravens newsletter with the month's folk customs, a magic spell, text versions of the stories, and of course, every main and bonus episode of the podcast advert free, please consider joining our Patreon for just $3 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. You also check our website at threeravenspodcast.com where we host our archive and our weekly blog which has lots of pictures of the places and things we've discussed in the episode. And if you have your own folktale that you would like us to feature on the podcast then please write it up and email it to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com so we can feature it in one of our upcoming listener episodes. Until next time then. While our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember... Don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to the wonderful books we consulted for this episode, including Sophia Kingshill's Mermaids, Robert Hunt's Cornish Fairies and The Cornwall Guide. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon. Our logo and graphic design work is by Ollie James Dare. And the Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 